0: Good morning, I'm Brad Strickler, and I'm going to lead us in the reading of uh, God's Word this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 11. So I invite you to find that passage and follow along with me as we read. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like other people who have no hope. First, the believers who died will rise from their grave. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Chapter five, verse one. Now concerning how and when this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you, for you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. When the people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin, and there will be no escape. But you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. For you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to darkness and night. So be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. Night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. But let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive, when he returns, we can live with him forever. So encourage each other and build each other up, just as you are already doing.
1: I grew up in a little rural town in northwest Iowa, Ashton, Iowa. I checked on the population of it this week. It's a, now down to a hundred when I was there, maybe 300 at most. I went to high school in George, Iowa, uh, which is a town of 2,000. I checked on the school system there. There are four, uh, four uh, two elementary grade uh, schools and one in the middle school and a high school, and the total number of students is 450 between the four schools. Uh, so, I grew up in a small area. In that little town of Ashton, there was a just one street and on that street was a uh, electronics repair store uh, run by Jack DeBoer. Jack and Florence were good friends of my parents and we never had a TV as I was growing up but Jack sold TVs so when we would go to visit Jack and Florence us boys would stay downstairs in the showroom and watch TV while my mom and dad visited with Jack and Florence upstairs above the store. I tell you that because Florence was my Sunday school teacher and Florence had a deep passion for the return of Christ and there were only a couple two three kids in my Sunday school class and we were in this basement of this Ashton Bible Church And uh, I remember clearly the walls were spackled paint. You know, it had little spackles on the wall and homemade furniture in the the Sunday school class. But every Sunday, whatever the topic was, whatever portion of scripture we were working on, sooner or later Florence would bring it back to the return of Christ uh, because she was so uh, committed to that hope that God had given her. Uh, Jack died of a heart attack and so she was a widow for many years but uh, that didn't deter her from this sense of hope that she would see Jack and that she would see others who had gone before. She was a deep believer uh, not only in the work of Christ for her salvation but the hope that he would return and that one day she would see not only the Lord face to face but Jack. We're looking at a text this morning right in the middle of 1 Thessalonians which focuses on the idea of the hope of Christ's return. Evidently Timothy had brought back a report to the Apostle Paul uh, about the condition of the church in Thessalonica and it seems as though perhaps one of the things that he reported to Paul is that there had been a concern developed in the church about the return of Christ and about what happens to those who pass away and that there was some concern about uh some perhaps some sorrow that was developing chapter 4 the chapter 4 verse 13 and following that we're looking at this morning is not the first time in the text of 1 Thessalonians that the idea of the return of Christ uh came up in each of the previous 3 chapters at the end of each chapter, there was a reference to the return of Christ. In chapter 1, uh, verse 10, he says, uh, they speak of how you're looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of coming judgment. Chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, uh, verse uh, 19, after all, what gives us hope and joy What is our proud reward and crown? It is you, yes, you will bring us much joy as we stand together before the Lord when he comes back again, for you are our pride and joy. The end of chapter three, verse 13. As a result, Christ will make your hearts strong, blameless, and holy when you stand before God our Father On the day when our Lord Jesus comes with all those who belong to him. So it's quite clear that this theme uh, is part of the whole of the text. What was it that Timothy had reported to Paul that made him uh, focus this specific section on the return of Christ? Well, i suggest to you, first of all, that there was a fundamental issue that Timothy reported back to the Apostle Paul. Verse 13, he says, "...and now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know what will happen to Christians who have died, so you will not be full of sorrow like people who have no hope." The fundamental issue uh, boiled down to the question of what happens when people die and its relationship to the return of Christ but primarily the fact that people were dying and people were grieving their death and the connection between the death of believers and the return of Christ was certainly uh, the central focus. So death becomes the fundamental issue. Death is not an accident. It's an appointment. Scriptures say it's appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27. I think we these days are more aware and alert to the issue of death in light of COVID. We woke up on Monday morning with the news that Colin Powell had died of COVID. COVID has brought the reality of death closer to us than we wish. Then later in the week we hear the news that Alec Baldwin shot Halea Hutchinson accidentally on a movie set. Uh, We hear of death all the time. I know as I grow older the reality of death becomes much more uh, center in my thinking Death is the the fundamental issue that every one of us must deal with in some way or another. I realize now that I've outlived the length of my dad's life. And so I'm living on grace. Each day, each one of us have the reality of death facing us. With the Thessalonians... In addition to that, evidently Paul had given them enough information that they understood that the return of Christ was was imminent; it was going to happen. But they were concerned that these people who died somehow or another would miss out on this great and glorious thing. We don't know whether they thought that they were uh, uh, not going to be raised, or whether they uh, thought that only those who were, were met Christ would, would survive. We're not clear on that. But it is clear that they were facing the reality of death. And as they faced it, the question was, how should they view those who had died? Paul raises two interesting thoughts. First of all, he says, we don't want you to be ignorant. Clearly, Paul wanted to communicate to them that there was some information that he needed to communicate to them which would help them as they faced the death of loved ones. And then he says we aren't to grieve or to sorrow as others. There's this truth which Paul was going to communicate to the, the Christians and Thessalonica, which would change fundamentally the way in which they handled death and the grieving process. And he said that there's information that we as believers have that fundamentally changes our approach to death. What is that? What is that information? Well, I think as we move on in the text, it's this fundamental assurance, this fundamental uh, foundation that gives us a sense of the difference between the way we approach death, the way we sorrow, and others. And that fundamental assurance is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verses 14 and 15, Paul writes, For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus comes, God will bring back with Jesus all the Christians who have died. The fundamental assurance that there is life beyond the grave is built upon this solid foundation that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The stone that was on the tomb was rolled away. Peter and John and Mary saw the risen Christ. Christ appeared to the disciples and said to them, Touch the nail prints. Feel the the scar in my side. And it was that tangible historical reality that there's an empty tomb that becomes the foundational assurance that resurrection is possible. Then the Apostle Paul goes one step further and he says in the next verse, verse 15, I can tell you this directly from the Lord. So it's not only the fact that we have this historical reality that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and we can look back to the uh, ancient Near East in the, uh, in the uh, tomb that was, uh, where he was buried and see that it is empty. But we can also see that Jesus Christ himself told us that there was such a thing as a resurrection of the dead. Paul says, I, I tell you this directly from the Lord. Now, we're not quite sure what he's referring to when he says that. There's no place in the Gospels or in our recorded Gospels that there's a statement that Christ has said that those who are dead in Christ will be raised first and the details that come a bit later in this text. But it is perhaps built upon the overall teachings of Jesus that the Apostle Paul deduced that there was a resurrection of those who had died in Christ. It may also be that The Apostle Paul received a special revelation from the Lord. But whatever it is, Paul makes it abundantly clear that the Lord has communicated to us via revelation that there is a resurrection from the dead. And as someone has said, divine revelation is so much greater than human speculation. We know from what God has revealed to us in his word that there is such a thing as a resurrection from the dead. And so this morning I can say to you without apology that there is a resurrection of the dead because Christ rose from the dead and Christ said that he would bring those who are in Christ back to life again. Paul moves on in the next section verses 16 through 18 by laying out a little bit more of the details of what this all entails. Verse 16 and the following he says, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and after that we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant so that you sorrow as those who have no hope, but I want you to understand that there is a resurrection and therefore you can encourage each other along these kinds of lines because you know the foundation of your hope and you can see how this is going to unfold And Paul lays out for them about four different aspects of the return of Christ. Verse 16, the first part of the verse, he says, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. In Roman times, the trumpets were used to announce the arrival of a great person. We know in the scriptures, when God gave the law, it was preceded by the trumpet blast. You remember when the children of Israel marched around Jericho to conquer and see their enemies uh, uh, triumphed over, it was when the trumpet blast sounded that the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Paul writes also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Verses 51 and 52, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Somebody said that's a great verse to put over the nursery. (laughs) We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed changed. Back in the early 1980's, our church in Springfield, Illinois partnered with a Haitian church through the ministry of Reciprocal Ministries. And So in the early 80's, mid 80's, I led a team of men from our church to uh, visit with our sister church in Beaumont, Haiti. And as we uh, uh, went, went up into the mountain area these long little narrow roads with the four-wheeled vehicles and as we got within oh I would say a mile or two from Beaumont we were suddenly surrounded by a group of people the Haitian church had come out and met us and they were blowing the trumpets and they led us in a procession into the town and I often think about that when I think about the trumpet being sounded and that, you know, when, when the trumpet sounds and uh, Christ comes, it's kind of like this, this sense of welcoming uh, the, the, the Lord uh, as, as he comes to this earth. So he talks about this return. Then he talks about, in the next section, the death in Christ will rise first. And so he points out quite clearly that there is this resurrection of those who have died and they are the first to experience the reality of resurrection. Verse 17 first part he says we who are still alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. It's called the rapture. Behold he is coming It says in Revelation with the clouds and every eye will see him and even those who have pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. It's the sense that things have come to a culmination and Christ is returning with the rapture. Finally, in verse 17, the last part, he says, so shall we ever be with the Lord. The reunion. So you've got the return, you've got the resurrection, you've got the rapture, and now you have this glorious reunion of saints who have known the Lord Jesus Christ meeting him face to face. When I was a kid, we used to sing a hymn, Oh, that will be glory for me, glory for me. When by his grace I shall look on his face, that will be glory for me. The return of Christ certainly will be glorious because of the fact that we will see others who have gone before us. But the real glory is going to be seeing the One who has saved us and loved us throughout eternity and seeing Him face to face. I read a story this week of Billy Graham. During the Korean War, he was visiting troops who had been injured or wounded in uh, Korea. There was this one fellow who, because of his wounds, had to lay face down and, on, and uh, so he, he couldn't turn his head to see uh, Billy Graham. And so uh, he had heard Billy Graham, he knew his voice, and he could hear his voice, but he couldn't see his face. And so Billy Graham lay down on his back, slid under his bed so that he could look on his face. And as you think about the Lord's return, we know a lot about the Lord because of what he has revealed to us. But then we will know, as it says in the scriptures, not through a glass darkly, but we will know him face to face. That's the reunion. That's what we have as believers to look forward to. The fourth movement is in verse 13 and 18, where he talks about the, the final accounting. He says in verse uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, which we've just been looking at, deal with the question of how do we respond to death uh, and and sorrow and what the resurrection means for that. But now in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we deal with something a bit different, and that is we deal with the issue of judgment. The reason we know that is because he speaks several times in this text about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is a technical term used in the Old Testament prophets. Uh, For example, I'll just read a text from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 18 and following, which talks about the day of the Lord. How terrible it will be for you who say, if only the day of the Lord were here. For then the Lord would rescue us from all our enemies. But you have no idea about what you're wishing for that day will not bring light and prosperity but darkness and disaster. In that day, you will be like a man who runs from a lion only to meet a bear. And after escaping the bear, he leans his hands against the wall in his house and he's bitten by a snake. Yes, the day of the Lord will be dark and hopeless, a day without a ray of joy or hope. That's a dark picture I couldn't help but thinking of the Roadrunner cartoons as I read that. You know, you run, and finally think he's safe, and bam, get knocked down again. And that's kind of the description here, and it's the day of judgment. And so, as Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he wants them to know that they don't need to be afraid of the day of judgment, but they need to understand it, and they need to understand it correctly. He says there's a wrong way to think about the, the coming judgment. And that is to fixate our thoughts on when it will happen rather than what will happen. Clearly the scriptures indicate that we don't know when the final judgment is going to happen. Acts 1, Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons. Been a lot of time wasted in trying to figure out when the Lord's going to be back. Lots of attempts to determine the date. The most famous, I suppose, was William Miller and the Millerites who calculated that in 1843 the Lord was going to come back. When it didn't happen, they moved it to uh, October 22, 1844. At a prophecy conference in uh, 2015, I heard a fellow predict that because there was a blood moon, which was referred to in Joel chapter 2, that would appear before Christ returned that uh, Christ was coming in 2015. I also heard that because of the reference to uh, a pure red heifer uh, in Joel chapter 2, Uh, in the Holy Land that that would signal the Lord's return and they were building a whole case about the the Lord coming. The scriptures make it quite clear that that's the wrong approach as we think about the return of Christ. Paul uses the image, uh, two metaphors, to help us to see it from a different perspective. He uses the metaphor of the thief in the night and the metaphor of a pregnant woman. And I'd like to think we look at these two and compare and contrast them a little bit because I think there's a subtle meaning between the two that we're to understand. The metaphor of the thief in the night is primarily negative. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 10, Peter writes, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. The thief's coming, unlike that of the birth with a pregnant woman, is unexpected. You expect birth, but you don't expect the thief. Had you expected him, you probably would have stopped him. So the the contrast here is between expecting and unexpected. The thief's coming is unexpected and it's negative it brings loss and sorrow. If you've ever been ripped off, you know what that feels like. Somebody's invaded your home and stolen something, you know the feeling. That's different from the metaphor of the pregnant woman. The pregnant woman has uh, goes into labor, but that's positive, and the delivery of a baby is expected. You don't know quite when, but you do know that it's coming. And so you expect the arrival of the baby. And contrary to the thief whose arrival brings sorrow and loss, with the arrival of a baby, there's joy and blessing. So I think what Paul is driving at here is there's two ways of understanding based upon where you are in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ as to how you are to see and respond to the, Lord's return. the right approach, he says, comes out as you read further, where he says, uh, verse 4, But you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, so you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief, for you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to darkness and night. So be on your guard, not not asleep like others. Stay alert and sober. Night is the time for sleep and the time when people get drunk. Let us who live in the light think clearly, protecting, protected the body, with armor of faith and love, and wearing the helmet of salvation, uh, the confidence of our salvation. The two contrasting images, now flow into this contrast between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Those who are part of the kingdom of light are awake and anticipating the coming of the Lord. Those who are part of the kingdom of darkness don't anticipate this coming. Those who are part of the kingdom of darkness are asleep, perhaps drunk, and partying. Those who are part of the kingdom of light are awake and alert. And their lives are b- built upon self-control, putting on, the faith, on faith and love as the breastplate, and putting on the hope of salvation. They are sober. It doesn't mean they're not having a lot of fun. It simply means that they are alert and aware of what's going on and what's coming. And so they are so different from those who are part of the kingdom of light. Those in the kingdom of darkness deaden their sentences through all the kinds of diversions that they experience. But Paul says, we're not going to be in the dark about what's going on. We know what's coming. We can anticipate what's coming. And we respond positively. Finally, in verses 9 through 11, he explains that we have been given a firm appointment. He writes, verse Nine. For God decided, some texts say appointed. For God appointed us or decided to save us through the Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. It's kind of the the culmination of his statements, what he's been developing here. Christ saved us, we are his children. And one day he's going to come back for us. And so we don't need to fear what he's talk, been talking about here in terms of the day of the Lord, which is this day of judgment. Because as we are not appointed to wrath. We're appointed to salvation. We have an appointment with our Lord because of what he has done for us and what the blood of Christ has accomplished in our lives. He died for us. So that whether we are awake or sleep, and I think there he's referring back to the very beginning in chapter 4, verses 13 and following, where he's talking about those who've died in Christ and those who are alive when Christ returns. doesn't make any difference. Whether you're dead or you're still alive when Christ returns, we will still all be destined for salvation. And he says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words, be encouraging to one another, building each other up, just as you are already doing. It's interesting that chapter 4, 13 through five eleven falls between that's what we talked about last week in terms of how we live, and as we will see next week, chapter 5, verse the, uh, uh, 12, moves on to, again, talking about how we live. So the the teaching about the return of Christ is sandwiched between how we live out now in light of what is happening as we move forward. Warren Wiersbe tells the story of walking through a a graveyard and on one of the tombstones were these words Pause my friend as you walk by You are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. Someone had scribbled on the side of the tombstone these words. To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. (laughs) Which way are you going? Which one of of these... uh, people that Paul addresses. Those who are the children of light or those who are still in darkness. The hope of the resurrection is tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and the salvation that he offers. And so I invite you if you have not gotten to that point in your life where you've trusted Christ as your forgiver, the leader, your life, the one who has offered himself as your Savior. The way you can have hope in the midst of death, the way you can find a different kind of sorrowing which still has hope, is through the work of Jesus Christ and what he has done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us a hope that reaches beyond the grave. Father, you've said, if only in this life we are, uh, have hope, we're of all people most miserable. Because the hope that you give us reaches beyond the grave. The hope that you give us is the hope of resurrection. It's the hope of seeing you face to face and being united not only with you, but with those who've gone before. Thank you, Father, for this hope. And we hang on to that because we know that you are faithful. In Christ's name. Amen. May the resurrected Christ give you hope that reaches far beyond the grave. Go in peace. Serve the Lord.